0: Well, church family, we are going to turn our attention to Revelation chapter 7 this morning, and there's probably three different kinds of you out there right now. I think one kind might be uh, your pencils are already sharpened, your journal is out, and you've been waiting for Revelation 7. Who are the 144,000? All right. Others of you might be like, I already know who the 144,000 is. I just hope Pastor Lucas gets it right. And I'm probably going to hear from you after the sermon today. Uh, That's okay. Uh, You've been taught a certain way and you've seen a certain model. And whether what I say agrees with what you've been taught or not, I hope that you see where all these different positions we're trying our best with the evidence in front of us. And I think the conclusion ends up the same. Um, But there might be a third group of you who are like, I just came, you know, it's Palm Sunday. (laughs) I just want a word from the Lord, you know, Uh, I think you'll get one, uh, but it might take a minute to get there as we kind of wrestle with some things that Christians have been debating for uh, a really long time. Um, And that is the questions that are put before us as we enter into John's vision in Revelation chapter 7. As a backdrop, so we're all reminded of where we are dropping into the middle of this not the exact middle, but going, jumping into Revelation chapter 7, where we are so far is John has seen the the Christ revealed as a lamb who was slain but is still alive. Okay, so there's the crucifixion and resurrection theme in the lamb. And that lamb is the one who is able to open the scroll and start popping off its seals. And as he does that, the scroll is being revealed. And as we're seeing the scroll revealed, we're we're getting an understanding of the contents of that scroll, and it's a scroll of God's judgment on a wicked world. God's judgment on a wicked world. Um, uh, My wife and I and our kids were driving through Nashville right around the time of the shooting that happened this week. And again, you're reminded, especially as we're reflecting on a book like Revelation, you're reminded of this longing that we have for someone to come and just put a stop to wickedness, right? And everyone's got their ideas on Twitter. But the book of Revelation is revealing to us God's answer. I don't care what millennial position you take, what you think about a great tribulation, or, or what 666 means. Christians agree universally that Revelation is about Jesus putting an end to wickedness, all oppression, persecution of his people, and rebellion against uh, Jesus Christ. And this book, even Revelation 7, however you take it, has to land there. It has to land there. What is your hope in this world of moral decay, evil, and wickedness? What is your hope, right? The hope is that there's a judgment that the world is awaiting, and if you're in, you're not scared of the judgment, you're hoping for it. If you're out, you should be, you should be scared of it. But the door is not closed yet, you can enter. I hope you do today if you're not in. Turn with us please to Revelation chapter 7 as we've got some ground to cover here. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. You can turn there, if you didn't bring a Bible, I do encourage you to just open up an app or something or, or just Google Revelation 7 or something. Get there because I want you to see what's there in the page and not just hear my words. Revelation chapter 7. It begins by answering a question, which is the last verse of chapter 6. If you remember, chapter 6 gave us six of the seven scrolls. We're like, what happened to the seven, or six of the seven seals? What happened to the seventh seal? We haven't gotten there yet. This is, chapter 7 is like an interlude. But we saw six of them, remember? And number 6 was pretty devastating. Number 6 was a catastrophic, mountains are flattened, islands are, are gone, uh, people are hiding in the rocks, in verse 16, are calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne, that's God, and from the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand when God finally, in that final day, unleashes his wrath on the world? Who is able to survive that and after that happens, still be standing? Now, you would think the answer would be nobody. Nobody can withstand the wrath of the lamb. But the answer is there are some who are sealed by the lamb and protected from that final wrath of destruction. I think that's what's happening in chapter 7. I don't think he's like, we're done with chapter 6. Chapter 7 is something totally different. Let me answer a totally different question. No, I think he's answering the question that we left off on in chapter 6. Who can stand the sealed? The people that are sealed of God won't be destroyed in that final deluge of God's wrath. Just like in the days of Noah. Everything was destroyed. No one could withstand that flood except those who were in the ark. It's, it, that was a preview of the final thing. Look with me just the first three verses. John writes, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So we'll stop there for a moment. And this is sort of the introduction of, of this vision. John sees four angels, four winds. We talked about how that number four sort of represents north, south, east, west. The four corners of the earth is not their understanding that the earth is flat. It's, it's the four Corners, the four directions of the earth, the four corners of a map. We can say now what Paul, what well, Paul, what John is saying here is as he sees this vision, he sees a sort of holding back. Okay, so on our trip back, we saw the 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 wake of destruction from wind, just just wind, and there's buildings that are falling apart. There's pieces of building in the street. Okay, so you all know. And we, a lot of us got a fresh taste, uh, at least in the news, of what wind can do. So it's symbolic of destruction. Okay, so I don't think this is like, oh, seal six was earthquakes, and then after earthquakes we get wind. Uh, good luck with pinning that down and making it work consistently throughout Scripture. Or you can just say, this isn't chronological, first this, then that, then earthquakes, after earthquakes, then wind, but not wind yet, because they're holding back on the wind. No. Revelation, or... Uh, seal number six, was already destroying the whole earth, okay? The whole earth is shaken and and rent, and now there's no sun, there's no moon, the stars fell to the earth, remember that? That was seal six. Now we get God telling the angels, whoa, 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 not even wind, don't even blow on the earth yet. Well, which one is it? Is had he destroyed the earth yet? Or are we kind of going back a little bit and going before that final thing, it's being held off? The final destruction of the earth is is being held back. The angels are ready to do it. They're ready. And God hasn't given them the permission yet. Okay? They're they're on the start and they're in the starting blocks and he's like, "Not yet. Not yet. Why not yet? I'm still bringing in the sealed. I'm still I'm still sealing people on their foreheads and I haven't brought in the full amount of people yet into my kingdom. And when I've stamped that last person, then we unleash the final thing. Okay? So uh we don't have to take it in chronological order. I think we get all kinds of confused And why you've been a Christian for 30 years and you still feel like you can't do devotions in revelation. Your system isn't working. The timelines and the charts, they're so crazy and confusing. Honestly, I think that's holding us back from, from benefiting from the book of Revelation oftentimes. I've got good brothers uh, and sisters that, that hold to those different views, and I don't mean to disparage them. But uh, sometimes I think they hold on to those views so tightly that you're virtually a heretic if you take it a different way. But I think we can be blessed by understanding that this isn't happening after seal number six. This is just saying before seal number six happens and the final thing happens, it's being held off. Why is it being held off? Because God is bringing in his remnant. He's bringing in his people, okay? Those that are sealed, those that are protected, those who will stand, in the end all right now you can connect that with Paul Jesus the rest of Revelation it it all flows it's all consistent and we don't have to keep developing new charts and timelines for it so that's what I think is happening at the top of chapter 7 it's beginning to answer that question who can stand who can make it and if you're wondering how is this relevant for me you can't think of a more relevant question to get answered this morning when you walked into church today this isn't about how to deal with anxiety, how to get promoted at work. And those are good questions to ask and things that we need to lean into. Tips for parenting. When the, when the world comes to an end, will you be destroyed or will you still be standing? Can, can you think of a more relevant question? The only difference between those who are hiding in the rocks going, I would rather be destroyed than face the wrath of the Lamb, and the ones who stand sealed, is whether you know Christ. That's the point of the book of Revelation. He rescues his churches. So these four angels are holding back these winds. They're holding it back from harming the earth. Notice that these aren't demons. This isn't Satan. It's God's judgments. Just like God sent plagues on Egypt. Demons didn't send plagues on Egypt. Demons tried to mimic and copy those plagues to sort of delegitimize God's power in uh, in that narrative. But God is the one that deals it. Why? Is he a big, grumpy, mean God? No, we're big, ugly sinners. Just like we sang about. And that's what communion is about. The person who goes, I'm not a sinner. God is just mean and grumpy. You'll hate him forever. You'll hate him forever. But those who go, you know what? I have, I've sinned against this holy God. This, this one who was, Worthy of glory and praise and honor. I've tried to take that praise and glory and honor for myself. I've rebelled against him. I need a way. Jesus provides that way. It's the seal that he offers now before the end. While the winds are being held off, he's bringing people into the ark, right? And so the opportunity is now. And he offers that opportunity through Jesus Christ. He says he's holding off the winds, verse 3, to protect or to keep bringing in uh, the sealed servants of God, sealed on their foreheads, okay? So they wear the stamp, if you will, the seal on their heads of God's protection. It's God's name. He owns these people, and he protects them, and he will get them to the end, just like a seal guaranteed, the, the scroll being delivered untampered. He gets them to the end with his seal. Now we get to the part that, well, I mean, all of this is really debated, but the, the 144,000, and I think the 144,000 are uh, believers, believers. Some take it this way, and I won't spend a whole lot of time here, but just this might sound familiar to you, or maybe this is the position you're in, but I think it's important to show you know, what, how other people take it. They'll see this 144,000 and then we'll say this is literally 144,000 exact number of people that are Israelites. These exact numbers from these exact tribes, they're literal ethnic Jews from literal ethnic tribes that will be saved in the end. That's their position. And the reason why that's their position, and you can, I guess, understand why they would take that position, um is because, first of all, it says Israel. (laughs) Not to be cheeky, but I've heard that. It says Israel, so I take the Bible literally. It says Israel. Okay, I know. I get it. So it says Israel. Then it gets specific about tribes. Uh, And then you also see that um, in verse 9, he looks and he sees it what they would say, another multitude. He sees the 144,000, then in verse 9 he looks and there's another multitude, a bigger number of people that are from every tribe and nation. So this can't be believers from everywhere. This must be believers only from Israel. And then this other multitude he sees in verse 9 is everybody else, okay? I know some of you are like, I, I, I really don't care that much. I, I understand. Hang, hang with me, okay? Because we're trying to do our best here with... Uh, what's given to us in scripture and when you hear other preachers handling revelation preachers on the radio or commentaries that you have or movies that you watch or book series that you may have read uh, when you hear christians say we must stand with israel and they look at you sideways if you say but i'm not sure if israel's right in this particular instance how dare you how how dare you this is, where, this is where it gets a little tense, okay? So you may not feel like it's tense for you, but I'm letting you in on some Christian debates that I think we have to pay attention to. It does say Israel, and also, how do you interpret Scripture? It says Israel. It says 144,000. That 12 number was very Jewish. You had 12 Jewish tribes, and then in the New Testament, Jesus chose 12 Jewish apostles, and so Jewish, Jewish, Right? And, and, and that's what it says. Um, I think that is a possible interpretation, and I'm not saying anyone's a heretic, and I think we can all abide together in CFC if, we're, if we disagree on this, all right? But I think it is not referring specifically to ethnic Jews. I think this is a picture of uh, people from everywhere, and even though verse 9 seems like he sees a different group, I think the camera angle is just changing again does jesus look like a lion he heard a lion but when he turns he saw a lamb do we have two christ's god the father has a hand the lamb has horns the lamb has a hand because he's able to grab a scroll right later jesus comes riding a white horse and there's a sword hanging out of his mouth but then his words are what condemn the people but how's he able to speak if there's a sword in his mouth it, it, when we press the images to be, everything has to be something different. Everything has to be something else. Right later, we're going to see a little scroll that John has to eat, and some people are like, well, that, this can't be the scroll that he's talking about here because that one says little. Well, th- this one doesn't say big. <laughs> later, it doesn't say, and another scroll. It's just telling you it's little. Why? Why can't it be the same scroll? But when we start pressing things like the lamb has to be different than this and the, the rider has to be different than that, and that's these guys, but that's not these guys. It, we, we get, it gets so complex, it's hard to put everything together. It's, really, it's almost impossible, I would say, to put everything together neatly. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do, press it to that level of exactitude. I think you can see two groups or two images or two symbols referring to the same thing. And everyone has to agree with that in some places, like the lion also being a lamb, okay? So if this is believers, it would make sense of a few things that are kind of weird. And I want to try to press through this quickly, but not so quickly that we didn't catch any of it, okay? This list differs from any other list of the tribes of Israel in all of Scripture. If you compare it with other lists, It's very different, okay? Sometimes you have lists of the sons of Israel. Sometimes you have lists of the territory tribes, right? The territories that they would get. And those lists lists would look different for for those reasons. But here you kind of have both going on. You've got sons listed, uh, but if it was sons being listed, then why is, uh, for instance, uh manasseh in verse six is listed and then joseph is listed manasseh is a grandson joseph is the, the son so either you would put joseph or not put joseph and then put his two sons manasseh and ephraim right but ephraim's missing manasseh's in there joseph's in there and that's one of the reasons why this list doesn't match any israelite list anywhere else okay so here you have one of those distinctions and you're like it scratches your head why do we have it's not about territories Because in verse 7, you've got Levi who didn't get a territory, right? Anyone remember why Levi did not get a territory? The Lord is your inheritance, all right? Moses told them in in Deuteronomy, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. The Lord is his inheritance, so this isn't really about territories. It's not strictly a list of sons because the Joseph and Manasseh thing messes it up. Dan is missing completely from the list. And then you've got the order all messed up. Reuben is the oldest, but he gets demoted to number two. You see that there? Well, that's because I think uh, in Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing the sons, he demotes them. He's like, you're preeminent. You're the first, but you're not going to be preeminent because of your incest. So he gets demoted. Judah gets promoted from number four to number one. Why does Judah get promoted? Anybody? This is, we've, we've seen Judah mentioned already in the previous vision. Jesus came from Judah. He's the one that takes the scepter. He's the Lion of Judah. How can, how can a tribe from which Jesus came be anything but first place? Okay? And so Judah gets promoted to number one from number four. Reuben gets demoted from number one to number two. Then you have the sons of the concubines that were always last in the list. You remember when Rachel and Leah were kind of, um, I don't know, being catty about their pregnancies. <laughs> Who can have more? Who can have them first? And so they started using their concubines to, to, to crank out surrogate mothers to get, to get more babies. Those sons are always at the bottom of the list because they're not from Rachel and Leah. They're from slave women. They're Gentiles. They're mixed. And so they're in the list. but They're in the, they're in the bottom. Here they're at the top. Gad Asher and Naphtali. they get promoted from bottom to top, even though they're from concubine women. That's interesting. So if we take this as literal list, we have a problem with how it conflicts with the other literal lists. Those are literal. This one conflicts because you left out Dan. Why is Dan left out? If you remember in Judges chapter eight, it was the tribe of Dan that led uh, the northern kingdom into idolatry. And Revelation is replete with warnings against idolatry. And so his name is left off the list because of the idolatrous act. Then you've got it communicating. You've got sons and grandsons. You've got Joseph and Manasseh. Why not Ephraim? You remember when Jacob was blessing Manasseh and Ephraim, he switched his hands and Joseph was like, hey, dad, you got it wrong. And he went to fix his hands. Said, no, I got it right. The younger is going to be prominent and preeminent And the older, he's going to be great, but he's going to be underneath the younger. Well, the one that got the lesser blessing in that exchange made the list in Revelation 7, and the other one didn't. So you see this theme of the least becoming the great, right? The last being first, and the first being last. Is that an Israel thing, or is that a church thing? We know that's a church thing. In other words, it's hard to make that work with regard to ethnicity, but it's easy to make that work with regard to what we're taught all over the New Testament about what it means to be in Christ, that the last shall be made first. So the person taking this as a literal list has various problems. Is no one going to be rescued from the tribe of Dan? Not one person? The second issue I have with this is how the people of this position, let's, let's say dispensationalists, and you can look it up later if that doesn't make sense to you, That would insist this is literal Israel. Remember back in Romans, Paul said in the end, all Israel will be saved? They're like, well, that's literal Israel. All Israel Israel is 144,000? What is that, like Schomburg and like Elk Grove? We've got like stadiums that are close to that number. 144,000? Is that underwhelming to you? In the end, he holds off all these angels. Because God in his magnificent grace, worthy to be praised, worthy of glory and honor is going to rescue this tiny, tiny fraction of Israelites that God grafted back in. That's it. Nobody from Dan? Double dipped on Joseph? Or is this a way of communicating what we've seen all over the New Testament? That Israel stands... For God's people of faith. That any of you as a little child, some of you who are newer to faith have no idea what I'm talking about and I'm about to embarrass myself and that's okay, but you sang this little song when you were a little kid, hoping to get candy afterwards, that your father was Abraham. <laughs> Abraham had many sons, many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, a Puerto Rican. Did you stand there singing? Like, I'm not supposed to be singing this song. I'm not Jewish. Or did you sing it understanding that there is a way in which each of us who have placed our faith in the promised seed that came through Abraham are children of Abraham through faith. And we we can go all over the New Testament to see that that is true. And I think we see that here in the book of Revelation as well. We see that back in chapter 3, Jesus promises to put his name on those who conquer. That's the seal. Back in chapter 3, that promise wasn't to Israelites, it's to the church. And so Jesus puts his name, his saving seal on those who believe in him, regardless of ethnicity. These are the kingdom people. And then in verse 9, the point is that it's from everywhere. People from every nation and every tongue and every place on the earth can be a part of the tribal kingdom of Jesus Christ. And even dispensationalists will be like, well, that's true. I just don't think that's what's going on here. And I would say, okay, I think it's also true and also going on here. <laughs> and then I don't also need 15 whiteboards to try to map it up. So every tribe, every, every nation from this multitude that we see in verse 9 is the same thing as what we see in the 144,000 in verses 5 to 8. At least one more thing to, to help prove the point. When you fast forward to Revelation chapter 14, you see the multitude of, you see the 144,000 there again. You could flip there if you want to, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get back to our text. But one, the 144,000 appear in Revelation 14. He looks on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. All right? Then he says, uh, the end of verse 3, No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the firstfruits of God and the Lamb. Pages sticking here. In their mouth, no lie was found. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel uh, flying overhead with eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. So there, the 144,000 doesn't say anything about Israel. It just says those who are redeemed from the earth. If this is a literal people, you've got 144,000. If it's the same group as those from chapter 7, the further literal detail you're given is that they're all male. Sorry, ladies. And they're virgins. 144,000 male virgins make it in the end. Wow. Now I've got to put that on the whiteboard. See what I'm saying? If you've ever thought, man, Revelation is too complicated, I think we've been dealt a raw deal by a certain view that starts pressing literalism in one place and when you do that there, the whack-a-mole pops up out of another hole and you got to whack that one down and once you whack that one down, another one pops up and doing theology feels like playing whack-a-mole all the time because you're trying to make all these things fit together. And how do you make it fit together? You've got to give on the literalism in certain places. And may I suggest to you that where a lot of people give on the literalism is where it doesn't fit their favorite whiteboard of the 15. I think this makes the most sense. So here, it can't be literal virgins. That doesn't make sense. Women are out. Every married man is out. They're all out. They're redeemed because they live such a perfect life. They never slept with anybody It just doesn't make sense. So they go, nah, that's figurative. Okay, why is it figurative in chapter 14, but it has to be literal in chapter 7? I don't think it has to be. I think even in the ordering of the list, we see how God is including Gentiles. He's including the least. He's including you, whether you were born of a concubine. You didn't come from the right lineage. You didn't live the right life necessarily, but you are redeemed. But those who reject God through idolatry aren't in. It's those who make it to the end by faith. And I think the list communicates that here in chapter 7. So, uh, I'm sure I'm leaving some things out, but I hopefully, hopefully that's enough for you to see that there's a way to take this. As much of the Bible does, that we have uh, precedent that Israel is the church, uh, and that it would make sense to take it the same way here. Let me just give you one more, and then we'll finish chapter 7. If you look at chapter 5, you remember chapter 5, we were there a few weeks ago. The creatures and the 24 elders fall down, worshiping the Lamb, each holding a golden harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Where from where from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made a people of God from every tribe and every people and every nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That is a specific promise given specifically to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. I will make you a kingdom and I'll make you a holy nation, and I'll make you a kingdom of priests. That was given to Israel, and now John, through this vision, is saying, everybody gets in on that. That's what he's saying there. Unless we're to go, no, 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 this is a different kingdom. Israel gets a kingdom, we get a different kingdom. Israel gets to be a, a, a holy nation of priests, but we're a different holy nation of priests how does that work well what happens is this kingdom gets raptured first and then then there's a great tribulation and then after the tribulation then the millennial reign and then a millennial reign now it's Israel's turn what happened before Israel well this was a big time out Israel's kind of out this is a different kingdom that kingdom gets raptured and then you got a great tribulation and then a thousand years of the other kingdom which is the literal one which is the one from before but that's not this one going to Staples buying new whiteboards again right It's complicated because everything has to have its own separate compartment or you can not press the literalism and say, I think when the Old Testament told Israel, I'm going to make you a, a, a kingdom and a nation that blesses all nations. He means the other nations are blessed because they get to be in on this promise that they don't have a different seal on their heads, but they have the name of Jesus Christ on their heads, the promised Messiah From ethnic Judah, puts his ownership on people from everywhere. And so, yes, a young little city kid with Puerto Rican parents can march with his fellow Sunday school kids and say, Father Abraham had many sons, and I get to be one. No matter where you were born, because you enter through faith, it's a kingdom of priests. Because we have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, sealed and protected by him, so that when the question is posed in 617, the great day of wrath is coming, who gets to stand? Not certain people from certain tribes, which pretty much no one even knows anymore. We don't even know what tribes anyone comes from anymore. That was basically obliterated. Rather, it's God's people God's people that he secured for himself through redemption, they will stand in the end. Not only do we stand, but we worship. So let's start from verse 4 and press through the rest of the vision. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. You see, the list begins and ends with the sealed concept. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I'll just pause there to understand the point that this is getting at, which is this. As, Christ, as Christ's sealed people, we will worship him forever with joy because we will never again experience trials as the sealed people of God, bearing Christ's name on our foreheads, we will worship the Lord for eternity with thankfulness and gratitude because we'll never again experience trials. That's what's happening in this whole scene with the palm branches, Palm Sunday. Wish I could take credit for that, but the Lord orchestrates things his way. We've got a Palm Sunday passage. I don't know how many churches are doing it from Revelation 7. Revelation 7. But the Holy Spirit has a sense of humor. It's a symbol of triumph. The, the, the king is riding in and they're using the palm branches to, to signify victory, triumph. And this is the final entrance of the lamb. And they're crying out because he's saved, effectively saved. And so salvation belongs to him. He's the one who's able to open the scroll and not just open the scroll, but protect a certain group of people from the effects of the scroll, which is God's wrath. He can do both. And so that makes his salvation great. That makes him worthy of praise and honor and glory. These worshipers are wearing white robes because their garments have been washed in the blood of the lamb, meaning they're cleansed by him. They're not pure because they live perfectly pure lives. They're pure because Jesus lived a perfectly pure life. And when you know Christ, he washes your sins away. That doesn't mean they never existed. It means they're forgiven. It means it's covered. Like when somebody pays your debt, that doesn't mean you never remember the debt. I don't remember ever being in debt because then you would never owe a thank you. You owe the thank you because you very much remember you were in debt and someone paid it. Didn't obliterate that the debt ever existed. They just took care of it so you don't have to pay it. But you're always reminded that that's there. That's why he's worshiped as the lamb in eternity. And that's why in this list of these seven Things ascribed to him in verse 12, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving is the new one. We already saw this list before, but John swaps in thanksgiving to, to, to help us understand that this is a worship that is prompted by gratitude for what he saved us from. Who's able to stand? Nobody, except for the ones that Jesus says you're covered. I got you. You're not going to be destroyed in judgment. You're going to be transferred to a life where there's no trials any longer. And it says in verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now quickly, here's another big controversial thing, but I'm I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it really at all. But when he's describing these white-robed people, and he's asking you know, where where do you think these people come from? You take your cue from John, you take your cue from Ezekiel. I guarantee this will never be your actual situation, but if an angel ever showed you something and then asked you a question to quiz you, your answer should be, I don't know. (laughs) I'm just saying. You know, sir. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. All right? You can take that to mean That through the church age, after Christ's ascension, there's troubles and there's trials and there's persecutions. And then the church gets raptured. This would be your pre-tribulation rapture. If you've ever heard, are you pre-trib or post-trib? This is what they're talking about. When the great tribulation happens, which is different than all the tribulations we're already facing, the great tribulation happens. Just before that, the church gets raptured and then the people that get left behind are all scurrying and, and searching for their ARs and flashlights, all right, and canned foods. And they know they're not supposed to take the mark. I should have listened in church. And if I ever see the number 666, but you're not sure what it is because it might be a UPC code. Maybe it's a QR code. Maybe it's a chip. Scary times for seven years. And then Jesus comes back and basically does seal number six. Okay. And that little seven year time is the great tribulation. Or, The church is experiencing tribulation, 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 escalating, escalating. It escalates to a climactic point of the greatest tribulation the earth has ever seen, which is mainly the church being persecuted. And you never thought it would ever be this bad, but it is this bad all over the place. And it reaches this sort of highest level that it's ever reached. And then Jesus comes back. Or, similar, It's not that it escalates, but the Great Tribulation is the tribulation that is characteristic of the church age, period. Let me pose a question to you. How bad can the Great Tribulation get? What what could be the worst? Let's say armed people show up at your house wearing the 666 badge, And they pull you out of your house, they throw you on the lawn, they point guns at your heads, and they say, deny Christ, take the mark. And you say no. And they say, okay, we're going to tie you between two pickup trucks and pull you apart, and we're going to saw you in half. We're going to decapitate your kids in front of you. We're going to chop off pieces of your body until you, we're going to put a stake in the lawn and throw you up on it and throw gasoline on you, and then we're going to light you on fire. I'm trying to think of the worst things I can possibly imagine. Didn't I just describe what started happening right after Christ ascended? It is comfortable Americans who can afford the theology that we're just kind of, this is just, this is just kind of like, yeah, you might get denied on Facebook, but it's not a big problem. But the Great Tribulation, oh, that's the big one, is it? Go out of your bubble and pay attention to what's happening right now right now to Christians around the world that are dis- that are experiencing the kinds of things that I just described now so it's hard to imagine how a rapture and then a great tribulation capital g capital t is going to be actually worse than that one now maybe you can make an argument for it and and describe how it's, it's the saturation it's 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 that it's, it's more than ever. That's okay. But like I said, remember, you can also see it as just escalating and escalating. And then the Great Tribulation is just this, this climactic escalation in the end. You don't need a rapture. You don't need people disappearing. You don't need 18 books, you know, to, to describe it, novels. It's pretty simple, guys. In this church age, the church is oppressed, harassed, persecuted. When Jesus said, follow me, he didn't say, pick up your cloth. He said, pick up your cross. Wait a minute, we're going to get executed? Yeah, yeah, you're following the persecuted Christ. (laughs) They're going to hate you on account of me. When? In the last seven years? No, right away. What happened to the 12 apostles? What's been happening to Christians throughout the church age? So this book is written not to comfortable people who think that suffering is in the future. This book is written to people who are quite uncomfortable now, experiencing things now that are at the hand of those who would wish to stamp out the church. And this is a a cry of victory. And this is Jesus communicating to the churches through John that if you hang in there and you persevere, you will make it in the end. You will be the one standing, not the unrighteous. They'll be crushed. But you won't be crushed, even if it feels like they're crushing you now. You will survive because you're my saints. You're my sealed. You're the ones I'm granting the white robes to. And you will make it in the end. And forever, you will worship me because even though this wilderness experience right now is, this, is characterized, verse 16, by hunger and thirst, you feel like you're in a desert and the sun is beating on you and you're getting scorched by the heat, you'll make it. And then when you're finally in that day, no more trials, no more tribulations, no more persecutions, no more oppression. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You notice there's tears there first, then he wipes them away. This is not a promise that we don't experience pain. He's going, you know the scorching heat that was so brutal? Yeah, we remember that. That's gone now. But the way some people argue is, well, God would never hurt his people, so he has to rapture them before the Great Tribulation happens. God will never hurt his people. Again, I turn you to Operation World or some similar website, Voice of the Martyrs, something, and try to tell those Christians in other parts of the world that the Great Tribulation isn't happening yet. Might be a hard sell. But when we lean into it and we see that this world is full of persecution on the Lord's saints, And I hope it does get better here in the States before it gets worse, but it might get worse. And it might be harder for our kids. It might even be harder still for their kids to be Christians. The sun's going to get hotter, perhaps. But we have a shepherd who guides us to the springs of living water and one day the promise is no more tears, no more heat. That's not a promise for right now. That's a promise for the final time that promise is yours if you're in Christ you are of the people of God if you are in Christ Jesus and you can hold that hope out to those who they're not they don't trust that there's actually going to be a great deluge and this stupid ark that you're building is worth anything but some people are wondering and some people are hoping They just don't think they have a ticket to the ark. You can give them one by inviting them to know Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, we read through this book. It's full of scary images, and it makes sense as we turn on the news and we see scary things, Um, whether it's a church getting blown up or a Christian school getting shot up or Christians getting hauled off and executed. Um, all the way down to the things that maybe each of us in here might deal with in some level. Maybe our commitment to Christ makes our marriage uncomfortable because of our unbelieving spouse, or our commitment makes it uncomfortable with our parents or vice versa with our kids because we spent all this time not serving you. Now we're serving you and the kids think it's a phase or something like that. We think of coworkers, neighbors, extended family members who have a difficult time with us, really it's because they have a difficult time with Christ in us. And it's difficult to navigate that, Father, but we pray that you would encourage us to press forward, that you would build us up, and that we would hold out this invitation of hope to those who are still lost, those who don't have the refuge of Christ, that they can escape that the scariness of the end and be invited into the hopefulness hopefulness of the end by coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior and the one who forgives truly by his own blood. Help us to worship you that way, Father, now, even as we close in this song. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.